Some years ago, when Tig and I were in the south of France at a place called Glanum, we were on a vacation of sorts. What we really wanted to see was the asylum where Van Gogh painted the irises, and we did see that. Glanum was a side trip. I haven't thought about it in years, but I find myself there now, back then in Glanum, before it was destroyed in the third century, before it was only a few ruins you pay to get into. There are spacious villas in Glanum. There are public baths, amphitheaters, temples, the kinds of buildings the Romans put up wherever they went so they could feel civilized and at home. Glanum is very pleasant. A lot of upper-level army men retire here. It's quite multicultural, quite diverse. We're fond of novelty, of the exotic, though not so much as they are in Rome. We're a bit provincial here. Still, we have gods from everywhere, in addition to the official gods, of course. For instance, we have a little temple to Sibylle, decorated with two ears in token of the body part you might wish to cut off in her honor. The men make jokes about that. You're lucky to get away with just the ears, they say. Better an earless man than no man at all. There are older Greek houses mixed in with the Roman ones, and a few Greek ways linger still. Celts come to town. Some of them wear tunics and cloaks like ours and speak decent Latin. Our relations with them are friendly enough, now that they've renounced their head-hunting ways. Tig has to do a certain amount of entertaining, and I once invited a leading Celt to dinner. It was a social risk, though a minor one. Our guest behaved normally enough and got just as drunk as manners required. His hair was odd, reddish and curly, and he was wearing his ceremonial bronze torque, but he was no more ferocious than some other men I might name, though he did have an eerie politeness. I'm having my breakfast in the morning room with the mural of Pomona and the Zephyrs. The painter was not first-rate. Pomona is slightly wall-eyed, and her breasts are enormous. But you can't always get first-rate here. What would I be eating? Bread, honey, dried figs. Fresh fruit isn't in season yet. No coffee, worse luck. I don't think it's been invented yet. I'm having some fermented mare's milk as an aid to digestion. A faithful slave has brought the breakfast in on a silver tray. They're good at slavery on this estate. They do it well. They're silent, discreet, efficient. They don't want to be sold, naturally. Being a house slave is better than working in the quarry. Tig comes in with a scroll. Tig is short for Tigris, a nickname bestowed on him by his erstwhile troops. Only a few intimates call him Tig. He's frowning. Bad news, I ask. The barbarians are invading, he says. They've crossed the Rhine. Not before breakfast, I say. He knows I can't discuss weighty matters right after getting up. But I've been too abrupt. I see his stricken look, and I relent. They're always crossing the Rhine. You'd think they'd get tired of it. Our legions will defeat them. They always have before. I don't know, says Tig. We shouldn't have let so many barbarians into the army. You can't depend on them. He spent a long time in the army himself, 
so his worry means something. On the other hand, it's his general view that Rome is going to hell in a handcart. And I've noticed that most retired men feel like that. The world simply cannot function minus their services. It's not that they feel useless. They feel unused. Please sit down, I say. I'll order you a nice piece of bread and honey with figs. Pig sits down. I don't proffer the mare's milk, though it would do him good. He knows I know he doesn't like it. He hates being nagged about his health, which has been giving him some problems lately. Oh, make things stay the way they are, I pray to him silently. Did you hear? I say. They found a freshly cut-off head hung up beside the old Celtic votive well. Some escaped quarry worker who ran off into the woods, which they've been warned against, heaven knows. Do you think they're reverting to paganism, the Celts? They hate us, really, says Tig. That memorial arch doesn't help. It's hardly tactful. Celts being defeated, Roman feet on their heads. Haven't you caught them staring at our necks? They'd love to stick the knife in. But they're soft now. They're used to luxuries not like the northern barbarians. The Celts know that if we go under, they'll go under too. He takes only one bite of the lovely bread. Then he stands up, paces around. He looks flushed. I'm going to the baths, he says, for the news. Gossip and rumor, I think. Portents, forebodings. Birds in flight, sheep's entrails. You never know if the news is true until it pounces, until it's right on top of you, until you reach out in the night and there's no more breathing, until you're howling in darkness, wandering the empty rooms in your white dress. We'll get through it, I say. Tig says nothing. It's such a beautiful day. The air smells of thyme. The fruit trees are in flower. But this means nothing to the barbarians. In fact, they prefer to invade on beautiful days. It provides more visibility for their lootings and massacres. These are the same barbarians who, I've heard, fill wicker cages with victims and set them on fire as a sacrifice to their gods. Still, they're very far away. Even if they manage to cross the Rhine, even if they aren't slain in thousands, even if the river fails to run red with their blood, they won't get here for a long time. Not in our lifetime, perhaps. Glanham is in no danger. Not yet. The Art of Cooking and Serving The summer I was eleven, I spent a lot of time knitting. I knitted doggedly, silently, crouched over the balls of wool and the steel needles and the lengthening swath of knitwear in a posture that was far from easy. I'd learned to knit too early in life to have mastered the trick of twisting the strand around my index finger. The finger had been too short. So I had to jab the right-hand needle in, hold it there with two left-hand fingers, then lift the entire right hand to loop the wool around the tip of the needle. I'd seen women who were able to knit and talk at the same time, barely glancing down, but I couldn't do it that way. My style of knitting required total concentration and caused my arms to ache and irritated me a lot. What I was knitting was a layette. 
A layette was a set of baby garments you were supposed to dress the newborn baby in so it would be warm when it was brought home from the hospital. At the very least, you needed to have two thumbless mittens, two stubby booties, a pair of leggings, a jacket, and a bonnet, to which you could add a knitted blanket if you had the patience, as well as a thing called a soaker. The soaker looked like a pair of shorts with pumpkin-shaped legs, like the ones in pictures of Sir Francis Drake. Cloth diapers and rubber baby pants were prone to leaks. That's what the soaker was for. But I was not going to knit the soaker. I hadn't yet got around to visualizing the fountains, the streams, the rivers of pee a baby was likely to produce. The blanket was tempting. There was one with rabbits on it that I longed to create, but I knew I had to draw the line somewhere because I didn't have all the time in the world. If I dawdled, the baby might arrive before I was ready for it and be forced to wear some sort of mismatched outfit put together out of hand-me-downs. I'd started on the leggings and the mittens as being fairly simple, mostly alternate rows of knit and pearl with some ribbing thrown in. That way, I could work up to the jacket, which was more complicated. I was saving the bonnet to the last. It was going to be my chef d'oeuvre. It was to be ornamented with satin ribbons to tie under the baby's chin. The possibilities of strangulation through ties like this had not yet been considered, and with huge ribbon rosettes that would stick out on either side of the baby's face like small cabbages. Babies dressed in layettes, I knew from the pictures in the beehive pattern book, were supposed to resemble confectionery, clean and sweet, delicious little cake-like bundles decorated with pastel icing. The color I'd chosen was white. It was the orthodox color, though a few of the beehive patterns were shown in an elfin pale green or a practical yellow. But white was best. After it was known whether the baby was a boy or a girl, I could add the ribbons, blue or pink. I had a vision of how the entire set would look when finished, pristine, gleaming, admirable, a tribute to my own goodwill and kindness. I hadn't yet realized it might also be a substitute for them. I was knitting this layette because my mother was expecting. I avoided the word pregnant, as did others. Pregnant was a blunt, bulgy, pendulous word. It weighed you down to think about it. Whereas expecting suggested a dog with its ears pricked, listening briskly, and with happy anticipation to an approaching footstep. My mother was old for such a thing. I gathered this by eavesdropping while she talked with her friends in the city, and from the worried wrinkles on the foreheads of the friends, and from their compressed lips and tiny shakes of the head, and from their oh dear tone, and from my mother saying she would just have to make the best of it. I gathered that something might be wrong with the baby because of my mother's age, but wrong how exactly? I listened as much as I could, but I couldn't make it out, and there was no one I could ask. Would it have no hands? Would it have a little pinhead? Would it be a moron? Moron was a term of abuse at school. I wasn't sure what it meant, but there were children you weren't supposed to stare at on the street because it wasn't their fault. They had just been born that way. I'd been told about the expectant state of my mother in May by my father. It had made me very anxious, 
partly because I'd also been told that until my new baby brother or sister had arrived safely, my mother would be in a dangerous condition. Something terrible might happen to her, something that might make her very ill, and it was all the more likely to happen if I myself did not pay proper attention. My father did not say what this thing was, but his gravity and terseness meant that it was a serious business. My mother, said my father, was not supposed to sweep the floor or carry anything heavy such as pails of water or bend down much or lift bulky objects. We would all have to pitch in, said my father, and do extra tasks. It would be my brother's job to mow the lawn from now until June when we would go up north. Up north there was no lawn. In any case, my brother wouldn't be there. He was heading off to a camp for boys to do things with axes in the woods. As for me, I would just have to be generally helpful. More helpful than usual, my father added in a manner that was meant to be encouraging. He himself would be helpful too, of course, but he couldn't be there all the time. He had some work to do when we would be at what other people called the cottage, but we called the island. Cottages had ice boxes and gas generators and water skiing, all of which we lacked. It was necessary for him to be away, which was unfortunate, he continued. But he would not be gone for very long, and he was sure I would be up to it. I myself was not so sure. He always thought I knew more than I knew, and that I was bigger than I was, and older and hardier. What he mistook for calmness and competence was actually fright. That was why I stared at him in silence, nodding my head. The danger that loomed was so vague and therefore so large, how could I even prepare for it? At the back of my mind, my feat of knitting was a sort of charm, like the fairy tale suits of nettles mute princesses were supposed to make for their swan-shaped brothers to turn them back into human beings. If I could only complete the full set of baby garments, the baby that was supposed to fit inside them would be conjured into the world and thus out of my mother. Once outside where I could see it, once it had a face, it could be dealt with. As it was, the thing was a menace. Thus I knitted on, with single-minded concentration. I finished the mittens before we went up north. They were more or less flawless, except for the odd botched stitch. After I got to the island, I polished off the leggings. The leg that was shorter could be stretched, I felt. Without pause, I started on the jacket, which was to have several bands of seed stitch on it, a challenge, but one I was determined to overcome. Meanwhile, my mother was being no use at all. At the beginning of my knitting marathon, she'd undertaken to do the booties. She did know how to knit. She'd knitted in the past. The pattern book I was using had once been hers. She could turn heels, a skill I hadn't quite mastered. But despite her superior ability, she was slacking off. All she'd done so far was half a booty. Her knitting lay neglected while she rested in a deck chair, her feet up on a log, reading historical romances with horseback riding and poisoning and sword play in them. I knew I'd read them myself. Or else just dozing, her head lying slackly on a pillow, 
her face pale and moist, her hair damp and lank, her stomach sticking out in a way that made me feel dizzy, as I did when someone else had cut their finger. She'd taken to wearing an old smock she'd put away in a trunk long ago. I remembered using it for dressing up at Halloween once when I was being a fat lady with a purse. It made her look poor. It was scary to watch her sleeping in the middle of the day. It was unlike her. Normally, she was a person who went for swift, purposeful walks, or skated around rinks in winter at an impressive speed, or swam with a lot of kicking, or rattled up the dishes. She called it rattling them up. She always knew what to do in an emergency. She was methodical and cheerful. She took command. Now, it was as if she had abdicated. When I wasn't knitting, I swept the floor diligently. I pumped out pails and pails of water with the hand pump and lugged them up the hill one at a time, spilling water down my bare legs. I did the washing in the zinc wash tub, scrubbing the clothes with sunlight soap on the washboard, carting them down to the lake to rinse them out, hauling them up the hill again to hang them on the line. I weeded the garden, I carried in the wood, all against the background of my mother's alarming passivity. Once a day she went for a swim, although she didn't swim energetically, not the way she used to. She just floated around, and I would go in too whether I wanted to or not. I had to prevent her from drowning. I had a fear of her sinking down suddenly, down through the cold brownish water with her hair fanning out like seaweed and her eyes gazing solemnly up at me. In that case, I would have to dive down and get my arm around her neck and tow her to shore. But how could I do that? She was so big. But nothing like that had happened yet, and she liked going into the water. It seemed to wake her up. With only her head sticking out, she looked more like herself. At such times, she would even smile, and I would have the illusion that everything was once again the way it was supposed to be. But then she would emerge, dripping. There were varicose veins on the backs of her legs. I couldn't avoid seeing them, although they embarrassed me, and make her way with painful slowness up to our cabin and put together our lunch. The lunch would be sardines or peanut butter on crackers or cheese if we had any, and tomatoes from the garden, and carrots I dug out and washed. She didn't appear much interested in eating this lunch, but she chewed away at it anyway. She would make an effort at conversation, how was my knitting coming along, but I didn't know what to say to her. I couldn't understand why she'd chosen to do what she'd done, why she'd turned herself into this listless, bloated version of herself thus changing the future, my future, into something shadow-filled and uncertain. I thought she'd done it on purpose. It didn't occur to me that she might have been ambushed. It was mid-August, hot and oppressive. The cicadas sang in the trees. The dry pine needles crackled underfoot. The lake was ominously still, the way it was when thunder was gathering. My mother was dozing. I sat on the dock, slapping at the stable flies and worrying. I felt like crying, but I could not allow myself to do that. I was completely alone. 
what would I do if the dangerous thing, whatever it was, began to happen? I thought I knew what it might be. The baby would start to come out too soon. And then what? I couldn't exactly stuff it back in. We were on an island. There were no other people in sight. There was no telephone. It was seven miles by boat to the nearest village. I would have to start the outboard motor on our clunky old boat. I knew how to do this, though pulling the cord hard enough was almost beyond my strength, and go all the way to the village, which could take an hour. From there, I could telephone for help. But what if the motor wouldn't start? That had been known to happen. Or what if it broke down on the way? There was a toolkit, but I'd learned only the most elementary operations. I could fix a shear pin. I could check a gas line. If those things didn't work, I would have to row or wave and yell at passing fishermen, if any. Or I could use the canoe, put a stone in the stern to weight it down, paddle from the bow end, as I'd been taught. But that method would be useless in a wind, even a light wind. I wasn't strong enough to hold a course. I would be blown sideways. I thought of a plan of last resort. I would take the canoe over to one of the small offshore islands. I could get that far, no matter what. Then I would set fire to the island. The smoke would be seen by a fire ranger who would send a float plane, and I would stand on the dock in full view and jump up and down and wave a white pillowcase. This could not fail. The risk was that I would set the mainland on fire as well by accident. Then I would end up in jail as an arsonist. But I would just have to do it anyway. It was either that, or my mother would... Would what? Here my mind cut out, and I ran up the hill and walked softly past my sleeping mother and into the cabin and got out the jar full of raisins and made my way to the large poplar tree where I always went when I'd come to the edge of an unthinkable thought. I propped myself against the tree, crammed a handful of raisins into my mouth, and plunged into my favorite book. This book was a cookbook. It was called The Art of Cooking and Serving, and I'd recently thrown over all novels and even The Guide to Woodland Mushrooms and devoted myself to it entirely. It was by a woman called Sarah Field Splint, a name I trusted. Sarah was old-fashioned and dependable. Field was pastoral and flowery, and Splint well, there could be no nonsense and weeping and hysteria and doubts about the right course of action with a woman called Splint by your side. This book dated from the olden days, ten years before I was born. It had been put out by the Crisco Company, a manufacturer of vegetable shortening, at the beginning of the Depression when butter had become expensive, said my mother, so all the recipes in it had Crisco in them. We always had lots of Crisco on the island, because butter went bad in the heat. Crisco, on the other hand, was virtually indestructible. In the long ago, before she'd started expecting, my mother had used it to make pies, and her writing could be found here and there among the recipes. Good, she'd written, or use half white, half brown. It wasn't the recipes that held me in thrall, however, it was the two chapters at the front of the book. The first was called The Servantless House. The second, The House with a Servant. 
Both of them were windows into another world, and I peered through them eagerly. I knew they were windows, not doors. I couldn't get in. But what entrancing lives were being lived in there? Sarah Field Splint had strict ideas on the proper conduct of life. She had rules. She imposed order. Hot foods must be served hot. Cold foods, cold. It just has to be done, however it is accomplished, she said. That was the kind of advice I needed to hear. She was firm on the subject of clean linen and shining silver. Better never to use anything but doilies and keep them immaculately fresh than to cover the table for even one meal with a cloth having a single spot on it, she ordered. We had oilcloth on our table and stainless steel. As for doilies, they were something beyond my experience, but I thought it would be elegant to have some. Despite her insistence on the basics, Sarah Field Splint had other more flexible values. Meal times must be enjoyed. They must have charm. Every table must have a centerpiece, a few flowers, an arrangement of fruits. Failing that, some tiny ferns combined with a bit of partridge vine or other colored woodsy thing in a low bowl or delicate wicker basket would do the trick. How I longed for a breakfast tray with a couple of daffodils in a bud vase, as pictured, or a tea table at which to entertain a few choice friends. Who would these friends be? Or best of all, breakfast served on a side porch with a lovely view of the winding river and the white church spire sailing out of the trees on the opposite bank. Sailing. I liked that. It sounded so peaceful. All of these things were available to the house with no servant. Then came the servant chapter. Here, too, Mrs. Splint was fastidious and solidly informative. You could tell she was Mrs. Splint. She was married, though without sloppy consequences, unlike my mother. One can transform an untidy, inexperienced girl into a well-groomed professional servant if one is patient and kind and fair he told me. Transform was the word I seized on. Did I want to transform or to be transformed? Was I to be the kind homemaker or the formerly untidy maid? I hardly knew. There were two photographs of the maid, one in daytime dress with white shoes and stockings and a white muslin apron. What was muslin? And the other in an afternoon tea and dinner outfit with black stockings and organdy collar and cuffs. Her expression in both pictures was the same, a gentle little half-smile, a straight-ahead, frank but reserved gaze, as if she was waiting for instructions. There were faint dark circles under her eyes. I couldn't tell whether she looked amiable or put upon or merely stupefied. She'd be the one to get blamed if there was a spot on the tablecloth or a piece of silver less than gleaming. All the same, I envied her. She was already transformed and had no more decisions to make. I finished the raisins, closed the book, wiped my sticky hands on my shorts. Now it was time for more knitting. Sometimes I forgot to wash my hands and got brown raisin stains on the white wool, but that could be corrected later. 
Ivory soap was what Mrs. Splint always used. It was good to know such a thing. First, I went down to the garden and broke off some pea vine and a handful of red flowers from the scarlet runner beans for the centerpiece it was now my duty to arrange. The charm of my centerpiece would not, however, cancel out the shabbiness of our paper napkins. My mother insisted they be used at least twice to avoid waste, and she wrote our initials on them in pencil. I could imagine what Mrs. Splint would think of this grubby practice. How long did all of this go on? It seemed forever. But perhaps it was only a week or two. In due course, my father returned. A few maple leaves turned orange, and then a few more. The loons gathered together, calling at night before their fall migration. Soon enough, we went back to the city, and I could go to school again in the normal way. I'd finished the layette, all except the one booty that was the responsibility of my mother. Would the baby have the foot of a swan? And I wrapped it in white tissue paper and put it in a drawer. It was a bit lopsided and not entirely clean. The raisin smears lingered, but you couldn't tell that when it was folded. My baby sister was born in October, a couple of weeks before I turned twelve. She had all the right fingers and toes. I threaded the pink ribbon into the eyelets in the layette and sewed together the rosettes for the bonnet, and the baby came home from the hospital in the proper manner and style. My mother's friends came over to visit and admired my handiwork, or so it appeared. You did all this, they said. Almost all, I said modestly. I didn't mention my mother's failure to complete her own minor task. My mother said she'd hardly had to lift a finger. I'd gone at the knitting just like a beaver. What a good little worker, said the friends, but I got the impression they thought it was funny. The baby was cute, though in no time flat she outgrew my layette, but she didn't sleep. As soon as you put her down, she'd be wide awake and wailing. The clouds of anxiety that had surrounded her before she was born seemed to have entered into her, and she would wake up six or seven or eight or nine times a night, crying plaintively. This didn't go away in a few months, as Dr. Spock's baby in child care said it would. If anything, it got worse. From having been too fat, my mother now became too thin. She was gaunt from lack of sleep, her hair dull, her eyes bruised-looking, her shoulders hunched over. I did my homework lying on my back with my feet up on the baby's crib, jiggling it and jiggling it so my mother could get some rest. Or I would come home from school and change the baby and bundle her up and take her out in her pram. Or I would pace back and forth, pressing her warm, fragrant, wriggling flannelette body against my shoulder with one hand, while holding a book up with the other, or I would take her into my room and rock her in my arms and sing to her. Singing was particularly effective. Oh, my darling Nellie Gray, they have taken you away, and I'll never see my darling any more, I would sing, or else the Coventry Carol from Junior Choir. Herod the king in his raging, charged he hath this day, his men of might in his own sight, 
all children young to slay. The tune was mournful, but it put her right to sleep. When I wasn't doing those things, I had to clean the bathroom or do the dishes. My sister turned one. I became thirteen. Now I was in high school. She turned two. I became fourteen. My girlfriends at school, some of them were fifteen already, were loitering on the way home, talking to boys. Some of them went to the movies, where they picked up boys from other schools. Others did the same at skating rinks. They exchanged views on which boys were real dolls and which were pills. They went to drive-ins on double dates with their new steadies and ate popcorn and rolled around in the back seats of cars. They tried on strapless dresses. They attended dances where, drowning in swoony music and the blue light of darkened gymnasiums, they shuffled around, mashed up against their partners. They necked on the couch in their rec rooms with the TV on. I listened to the descriptions of all this at lunch hour, but I couldn't join in. I avoided the boys who approached me. Somehow, I had to turn away. I had to go home and look after the baby, who was still not sleeping. My mother dragged around the house as if she was ill or starving. She'd been to the doctor about the baby's sleeplessness, but he'd been no help. All he said was, you've got one of those. From being worried, I now became surly. I escaped from the dinner table every night as soon as I could. I shut myself in my room and answered questions from my parents with grudging monosyllables. When I wasn't doing homework or chores or baby tending, I would lie on my bed with my head hanging over the edge, holding up a mirror to see what I looked like upside down. One evening, I was standing behind my mother. I must have been waiting for her to get out of the bathroom so I could try out something or other on myself, a different shampoo, most likely. She was bending over the laundry hamper, hauling out the dirty clothes. The baby started to cry. Could you go and put her to sleep, she said, as she had done so often. Ordinarily, I would trudge off, soothe, sing, rock. Why should I? I said. She's not my baby. I didn't have her. You did. I'd never said anything this rude to her. Even as the words were coming out of my mouth, I knew I'd gone too far. Though all I'd done was spoken the truth, or part of it. My mother stood up and whirled around all in one movement and slapped me hard across the face. She'd never done that before, or anything remotely like it. I didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. We were both shocked by ourselves and also by each other. I ought to have felt hurt, and I did. But I also felt set free, as if released from an enchantment. I was no longer compelled to do service. On the outside, I would still be helpful. I wouldn't be able to change that about myself. But another, more secret life spread out before me, unrolling like dark fabric. I, too, would soon go to the drive-in theaters. I, too, would eat popcorn. Already in spirit, I was off and running, to the movies, to the skating rinks, to the swooning blue-lit dances, and to all sorts of other seductive and tawdry and frightening pleasures I could not yet begin to imagine.
The Headless Horseman For Halloween that year, the year my sister was two, I dressed up as the Headless Horseman. Before, I'd only ever been ghosts and fat ladies, both of which were easy. All you needed was a sheet and a lot of talcum powder, or a dress and a hat and some padding. But this year would be the last one I'd ever be able to disguise myself, or so I believed. I was getting too old for it. I was almost finished with being thirteen, and so I felt the urge to make a special effort. Halloween was my best holiday. Why did I like it so much? Perhaps because I could take time off from being myself, or from the impersonation of myself I was finding it increasingly expedient, but also increasingly burdensome, to perform in public. I got the Headless Horseman idea from a story we'd read in school. In the story, the Headless Horseman was a grisly legend and also a joke, and that was the effect I was aiming for. I thought everyone would be familiar with this figure. If I'd studied a thing in school, I assumed it was general knowledge. I hadn't yet discovered that I lived in a sort of transparent balloon drifting over the world without making much contact with it, and that the people I knew appeared to me at a different angle from the one at which they appeared to themselves, and that the reverse was also true. I was smaller to others up there in my balloon than I was to myself. I was also blurrier. I had an image of how the headless horseman was supposed to look. He was said to ride around at night with nothing on top of his shoulders but a neck, his head held in one arm, the eyes fixing the horrified viewer in a ghastly glare. I made the head out of papier-mâché, using strips of newspaper soaked in a flour-and-water paste I cooked myself, as per the instructions in The Rainy Day Book of Hobbies. Earlier in my life, long ago, at least two years ago, I'd had a wistful desire to make all the things suggested in this book. Animals twisted out of pipe cleaners, balsa wood boats that would whiz around when you dropped cooking oil into a hole in the middle, and a tractor thing put together out of an empty thread spool, two matchsticks, and a rubber band. But somehow I could never find the right materials in our house. Cooking up paste glue was simple, however. All you needed was flour and water. Then you simmered and stirred until the paste was translucent. The lumps didn't matter. You could squeeze them out later. The glue got quite hard when it was dry, and I realized the next morning that I should have filled the pot with water after using it. My mother always said, a good cook does her own dishes. But then, I reflected, glue was not real cooking. The head came out too square. I squashed it at the top to make it more like a head, then left it down by the furnace to dry. The drying took longer than I'd planned, and during the process, the nose shrank and the head began to smell funny. I could see that I should have spent more time on the chin, but it was too late to add on to it. When the head was dry enough, at least on the outside, I painted it what I hoped was a flesh color, a wishy-washy bathrobe pink, and then I painted two very white eyeballs with black pupils. The eyes came out a little crossed, but it couldn't be helped. I didn't want to make the eyeballs gray by fooling around with the black pupils on the damp white paint. I added dark circles under the eyes and black eyebrows 
and black enamel hair that appeared to have been slicked down with brilliantine. I painted a red mouth with a trickle of shiny enamel blood coming down from one corner. I'd taken care to put a neck stub on the bottom of the head, and I painted this red, for where the head had been severed, with a white circle in the middle of the bottom part for the neck bone. The body of the horseman took some thought. I made a cape out of a piece of black fabric left over from a now obsolete puppet stage of mine, gathering it at the neck end, designed to sit on top of my head and sewing buttons down the front and cutting two inconspicuous holes at eye level so I'd be able to see out. I borrowed my mother's jodhpurs and riding boots, left over from before she was married. She hadn't ridden a horse since her wedding day, she was in the habit of saying, proudly or regretfully. Probably it was both, but I didn't pay much attention to my mother's tone of voice then. I had to tune it out in order to charge full speed ahead with what I myself was doing. The riding boots were too big, but I made up for that with hockey socks. I safety-pinned the jodhpurs around the waist to keep them from falling down. I got hold of some black winter gloves and improvised a horse whip out of a stick and a piece of leather I'd scrounged from the box of archery materials. Archery had once been popular with my father and then with my brother, but my father had given it up and the box had been abandoned in the trunk room in the cellar now that my brother had to study so much. I tried on the entire outfit in front of my mirror with the head held in the crook of my arm. I could scarcely see myself through the eye holes, but the dark shape looming in the glass with two sinister eyeballs staring out balefully from somewhere near the elbow looked pretty good to me. On the night itself, I groped my way out the door and joined my best friend of the moment, whose name was Annie. Annie had done herself up as Raggedy Ann, complete with a wig of red wool braids. We'd taken flashlights, but Annie had to hold my arm to guide me through the darker patches of the night, which were numerous in the badly lit suburb we were traversing. I should have made the eye holes bigger. We went from door to door shouting, Shell out! Shell out! and collecting popcorn balls and candy apples and licorice twists and the Halloween toffees wrapped in orange and black waxed paper with designs of pumpkins and bats on them, of which I was especially fond. I loved the sensation of prowling abroad in the darkness, of being unseen, unknown, potentially terrifying, though all the time retaining, underneath, my own harmless, mundane, and dutiful self. There was a full moon, I think. There ought to have been one. The air was crisp. There were fallen leaves. Jack-o'-lanterns burned on the porches, giving off the exciting odor of singed pumpkin. Everything was as I'd imagined it beforehand, though already I felt it slipping away from me. I was too old. That was the problem. Halloween was for little children. I'd grown beyond it, I was looking down on it from my balloon. Now that I'd arrived at the moment I'd planned for, I couldn't remember why I'd gone to all that trouble. I was disappointed, too, at the response of the adults who answered the doors. Everyone knew who my friend Annie was portraying. Raggedy Annie, they cried with delight. They even got the pun. But to me, they said, And who are you supposed to be?
My cape had a muffling effect, so I often had to repeat the answer twice. The headless horseman. The headless what? Then, what's that you're holding? They would go on to say. It's the head of the headless horseman. Oh, yes, I see. The head would then be admired, though in the overdone way adults had of admiring a thing when they secretly thought it was inept and laughable. It didn't occur to me that if I'd wanted my costume to be understood immediately, I should have chosen something more obvious. However, there was one member of the audience who'd been suitably impressed. It was my little sister, who hadn't yet gone to bed when I'd made my way through the living room en route to the door. She'd taken one look at the shambling black torso and the big boots and the shiny-haired, frowning, bodiless head and had begun to scream. She'd screamed and screamed and hadn't been reassured when I'd lifted up the cape to show that it was really only me underneath. If anything, that had made it worse. Do you remember the head? I asked my sister. We're in her rackety car driving over to see our mother, who is now very old and bedridden and blind. My sister doesn't ask, what head? She knows what head. It looked like a pimp, she says, with that greaser hair. Then she says, smart move, Fred. She talks out loud to other inferior drivers when she's driving, a thing she does adroitly. All of the other drivers are named Fred even the women. How do you know what a pimp looks like? You know what I mean. A dead pimp, then, I say. Not completely dead. The eyes followed you around the room like those 3D Jesuses. They couldn't have. They were sort of crossed. They did, though. I was afraid of it. You played with it later, I say. When you were older, you used to make it talk. I was afraid of it anyway, she says. That's right, Fred, take the whole road. Maybe I warped you in childhood, I say. Something did, she says, and laughs. For a while after that Halloween, the head lived in the trunk room, which contained not only two steamer trunks filled with things of my mother's from her previous life, tea cloths she'd embroidered for her trousseau, long kid gloves she'd saved, but also a number of empty suitcases and the metal box of fly-tying equipment and the archery materials and an assortment of miscellaneous items I used to rummage through and pilfer. The head was on an upper shelf, the one with the battered skates and the leather boots, my father's, also my mother's. Foot, 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 head, foot, foot, foot. If you weren't ready for this arrangement and happened to glance up at it, the effect could be disconcerting. By that time, we had a second phone in the house so I could talk with my boyfriends or go through what passed for talking without exasperating my father too much. He thought phone conversations should be short and should convey information. The door to the trunk room was right beside the phone. I liked to keep that door closed while I was talking, Otherwise, I could see the head staring out at me through the gloom, blood dribbling from the corner of its mouth. With its sleek black hair and minimal chin, it looked like a comic book head waiter who'd got into a fight. 
At the same time, it seemed malignantly attentive, as if it was taking in every word I said and putting a sour construction on my motives. After its period of retreat in the trunk room, the head migrated into my sister's dress-up box. By now, I was fifteen, and my sister was four. She was still an anxious child. If anything, she was more anxious than ever. She didn't sleep through the night. She'd wake up five or six or seven or nine or ten or eleven times, according to my mother. Although I had the room right next to hers, I never heard her plaintive calls and frightened wailing. I slept through it all as if drugged. But sleeping mothers hear the cries of their own children, we've been told. They can't help it. Studies have been done. My mother was no exception. She'd hear the little voice calling to her across the blankness of sleep. She'd half wake, then stumble into my sister's room, soothe her mechanically, bring her drinks of water, tuck her in again, then go back to bed and fall asleep, only to be wakened once more, and then once more, and then once more. She'd grown thinner and thinner in the last four years, her skin pale, her hair brittle and graying, her eyes unnaturally large. In actuality, she'd caught a disease of the thyroid from the hamster we'd foisted on my sister as a pet in the vain hope that the sound of it creaking round and around on its exercise wheel at night would be calming to her. It was this disease that accounted for my mother's scrawniness and staring eyes. Once diagnosed, it was easily cured. But that detail tended to get sidelined during the later recountings of this story, both by my mother and by me. The fairy child, the changeling who didn't follow the convenient patterns of other children, who sucked up its mother's energy in an uncanny and nocturnal manner. This is a theme with more inherent interest to it than a hamster-transmitted thyroid disease. My sister did look a little like a fairy changeling. She was tiny, with blonde braids and big blue eyes, and a rabbity way of nibbling on her lower lip as if to keep it from trembling. Her approach to life was tentative. New foods made her nervous, new people, new experiences. She stood at the edge of them, extended a finger, touched gingerly, then more often than not, turned away. No was a word she learned early. At children's parties, she was reluctant to join in the games, Birthday cake made her throw up. She was particularly apprehensive about doors and about who might come. Thus, it was probably a bad idea of my father's to pretend to be a bear, a game that had been a great success with his two older children. My sister was fascinated by this game as well, but her interest took a different form. She didn't understand that the bear game was supposed to be fun that it was an excuse for laughing, shrieking, and running away. Instead, she wanted to observe the bear without being spotted by it herself. This was the reason she'd snipped two holes at eye level in my mother's floor-to-ceiling drapes. She'd go in behind the drapes and peek out through the holes, waiting in a state of paralyzed terror for my father to come home. Would he be a bear, or would he be a father? And even if he looked like a father, would he turn into a bear without warning? 
she could never be sure. My mother was not delighted when she discovered the holes cut in her drapes. They were lined drapes. My mother had pleated and hemmed them herself, not because she liked sewing, but because it was a good deal cheaper that way. But there was nothing to be done. Okay, as we get ready to take off, please be sure to check that your seat belts are fastened, that your tray tables are up, and that your electronics are off. As the crew comes through to make final cabin checks, please let us know if you have any questions or need any help. We promise to do everything we can to make sure you have a safe, comfortable flight. Uh. With these lazy eyes I seen More than you could see in seven lifetimes Get you on track, got the fresh scoop from inside Get you insight on the situation Cause I done it twice Done the dotted line, tight rope walk Where the suits want results, they don't talk Dozens of songs locked away And rotten in the vault No one to blame, it was solely my fault No salt thrown, just boss game long Right now I'm not tripping, pimping You could pay me for it when you get it I'm trying to get a bigger home Put my niggas on, they putting they niggas we getting really strong. Met Rex, Jets, best shape ever. Win the circle. You squares need to get it together. Or stop hanging with each other. Go somewhere and get it separate. Your bitch want that vitamin D. She looking desperate. Bullshit convo. Five minutes invested. Now she buck naked. Lying to you via text message. In a snap like celery or fresh lettuce. Get beheaded trying to get ahead of us. You know which way is up. Clients from our friends at the FAA. The Yeah. yeah, ask the world 
still turning, my joint still burning. I hold my head high and I got that from Uncle Vernon. So if you want respect, you gotta earn it. It's crazy, most people never learn it. Preach. So before they hear my sermon, here's my confession. I get dressed with my burner. Sheesh, I know that ain't right, but I know ain't shit sweet. Try living on my tray first street. So before I fall asleep with a certified freak who's just trying to get her hands on some court side seats. I'm cool, nice try, but you can't get that from me. Nice guy, hard body, man, ain't way too weak. Gucci bros even said I keep it way too G. And never try to be something I'm not, I do me. I find it better on my own two feet. Ride it, keep it unique and low key. Just fool. For the point zero 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 one percent of you who have never operated a seatbelt before, it works like this. Just insert the metal end into the buckle until it clicks. Then pull the loose end to tighten. To open, lift the top of the buckle. Be sure the belt sits low and tight across your lap. Fresh polo bucket on, niggas know I'm acting out Smoke so much cushion, the whip I started blacking out I'm hopping out, I'm one of the freshest without a doubt Bitches love when I come around, they know what I'm about Take them to the house, fuck them good, smoke them out Burn a whole ounce with a mama back to my paper route I'm trying to put a couple of dollars in my money pouch Bag to bag transactions, then I'm opening out Dumb it down, never that, you should know me by now I'm floating on a cush cloud and I never come down Just set international, we were renowned Known for taking niggas, bitches when we come in town Lanes crying over hoes, that tears of a clown I'm smoking on some purple and green, you steaming brown Leaves with the sticks and seeds, they can see me now It's M.O.E. I rest in peace on a money pile There are four doors, two in the front and two in the rear Each door has an inflation slide which inflates when the door is open What's up, everybody? You're now tuning in the final hour here on Muni Radio. Thank you for all the listeners and supporters out there. You can support us on our Patreon page and our Venmo. Our Venmo is at Muni Radio. Thanks, everybody, who showed up to the Comedy Festival last week. I heard it was very successful. We appreciate all you coming out to the shows. But tonight... I got some nice tunes for y'all. I brought some vinyl to play some tracks off of. And we're gonna hear, you know, a lot of new music that I think you guys should listen to, as well as some oldies that I've been rocking with too. Started things off with that currency flight briefing featuring trademark and young Roddy. And after this, I'm gonna play some new Duckworth. He's dropped a new album, Chrome Bowl and he's been killing it. I've been seeing this guy's progress for many years. He's been 
an opener at the Elbow Room in SF, and now he's headlining tours around the world. And uh, we're going to keep it moving with a lot of good tunes for the next two hours. Don't go anywhere. This is the final hour.
New music from La Doña right now. Mañana's Tristes.
could be better than this Our love is mad They said we don't mix, don't you? We fit to get in the sandbox click oh, I'm glad I can always come over You glad that I get in my shoulder Trying to keep it together, maybe I'm lacking the effort. I've been trying to find the good and bad situations making me better. Navigating everything that's dark, the light been keeping me tethered. I done came a long way from that boy that was shot. Now they say I'm a vibe, I feel I'm aging like wine. I'm the creation of all the patience that's just coming with time. When you living in the future, you feel out of your mind. I need to fly away, I need to hide away, I gotta find my way. Feeling low, you see it in my face, shit, I got time today. I just copped a bag and some dope, I'm getting high today. Maybe I've been lacking in focus, I'm feeling scatterbrained. Probably need some ground and feel depleted, water in my fountain. Searching for my legend, I've been roaming, but I haven't found it. Just to reach my peak, I'ma scour all the tallest mountains. They can never keep you on the ground if you don't allow it. Matter of fact, I got many. This is a new voyage. For those of you who wonder what the answer's for, please allow me to explain. I've been asked to pour all of the places and ways to fly away. I wanna fly like the mind of Jalil. He saw past his own freedom, but for all to heal. 
Cause in many ways we all been confined in cages on some inhumane ills Some of us forgot to feel I'm talking more numb than light cane to the hills But I know we know how to go Better yet we can fly Fly like Nitty Scott Leaving home to chase our dreams I'm talking fly like Otis Redding Flying over the dock of the bay When he sings Cause I believe I can be that epitome That's hard to reach in. I got a new angel niece Who will be helping to guide my wings So I hope you find all the wind You need to take that first leap And leave your fears in the hands of your dreams let it speak to your heartbeat Allow my voice to be your flight attendant If it helps, it helps me I wanna know we still can tap into what we seek I hope you got it, it's the time to release It's time to fly Stardust for thus after me. Enter the void, fill in the cavity. Risk the reward if that's how it has to be. I gotta do better, I gotta do better, I gotta do everything in my power to try to do what gotta do. Ride the tide, don't fight with the current that guided you. Melt the ice round the furnace burning inside of you. I gotta do better, I gotta do better, I gotta do better. There's nothing they can do that I can't do better. Better yet, there's nothing I can do that I can't do better. Yeah, I'm better. I said I'm better. Gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta. Gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta. Gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta. Gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta. Gotta do better. Gotta do better today. Gotta do better before it's too late. Shade stuck to my face. Hoodie glued to my head. Hiding from the same world that made me who I am. Deep rest. Can't even get out of bed. Too blessed to be so stressed. I do all this shit just to say get off my dick. Mixed emotions prohibit my focus. This what you wanted. What's wrong with you? You don't make sense. Feel like I could flip at any moment. Face is playing and it's fucking with me. Doing drugs was just a war with boredom, but it's sure to get me. Lord forgive me. Amen. Wear the crown of thorns for sport. I'm just waiting for a stone to hit me. Uh. Relationship on the rocks, my family y'all concerned My homie still on the block, getting it off the curb I'm stricken by survivor's guilt, I'm getting it off of words Word 
Come on, Herb. You gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta, gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta, gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta, gotta do better. I gotta do better. I gotta, gotta do better. Gotta do better today. Gotta do better before it's too late.
a woman who brings oh yes love and laughter whenever she sings to the people standing beneath her
just some new Chris Crack. He's dropped a new album, What Y'all Mad About Today. The track was real more attractive than perfect. Always killing it with the song titles. Before that, Bernard Pretty Purdy song for Aretha. Then we heard some new Kenny Beats. He dropped his album Louie last month. That track was Last Words. Brand new music from Absol featuring Zachary. That was Do Better off his upcoming album that hasn't released the title or any major information yet, but I'm patiently waiting on a new project from him. New music from Afterthought and Ian Santillano, Fly Away featuring Sean G. Benny Sings, B5. New music from La Doña, Mañanas Tristes. King Giz and Lizard Wizard, Kepler22B. Some phony people, once you say hello. And we started things off with that. Crumble, Duckworth, 1130. And uh, right about now, I gotta get into this artist that I saw this past week that 
just put on one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. I'm talking about the Mars Volta right here. Back together, first tour in 10 years, first new album in 10 years, and they played a legendary two-hour show of everything I could want for, for them, and just hearing that modern prog shit live in the flesh. There's nothing like it. So I'm gonna bring it back right now to one of the tracks they performed that's probably my favorite. This is off their 2005 album, Francis the Mute, Olivia Vasquez. You're tuned into the final hour on Nini Radio.
Made my way back 